0: Well, if you will, open me in your Bibles to Psalm 39, Psalm 39, and, and as you're turning there, I, I was supposed to see this because I put it up here on the pulpit for me to see and yet I still forgot about it, but this is just a reminder, I haven't shared this, but for the last two weeks we've had them back there. These are little um, booklets. Uh, that briefly explain the gospel. This is written by uh, Paul Washer. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of you know who Paul Washer is, excellent preacher, minister of the word of God. Um, We have lots of these and they're free. Um, So please do take them, read them for yourself. Take them. If you have someone, you know, you can, you can pass them out to uh, take those as well. So we've got uh, plenty in the foyer. I'll have Plenty more if we run out of those, I've got them in the back, and and just as a reminder as well, everything in that foyer is is free for the taking, so I just thought I'd bring that to your attention as I'm reminded of it afresh while I'm up here. Uh, But as as it is this morning, we are in uh, Psalm 39, uh, continuing to make our way through uh, Book 1 of the Psalter. Of course, we are coming close to the end. Book 1 ends with Psalm uh, 41. Uh, But uh, uh, this morning we'll be in Psalm 39, which uh, continues many of the themes that we saw even last week in Psalm uh, 38. Uh, But we'll begin our time together by uh, reading uh, the whole of the psalm. You can see that uh, David writes this. He says that it's um, for the choir master, to the choir master, and he names uh, Jeduthun, uh, specifically um, who, is, who is mentioned also um, in Chronicles as one of the uh, leaders among the Levites um, who would direct the uh, Levitical choir. Um, so uh, David is writing here, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we begin uh, with verse 1, reading, uh, David says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my stress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in You. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry, hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. As your word says in the Psalms, Psalm 8, even as we read earlier from Job 7, what is man that you are mindful of him? Particularly when, when we are afflicted, when we are enduring sufferings of any kind, we can wonder why are these things happening? Why are you paying such close attention to me and to my life? And in truth, we know the answer. We know that you are the sovereign God who upholds and governs all things. You are the God who cares even for the smallest sparrow. And therefore, how much more will you pay attention to those you've made in your image? And yet, Lord, our our suffering can, can cloud our judgments. It can cloud our thinking and our sight. And it can be very easy to lash out and dishonor You. And yet, David here shows us a better way in this psalm. He shows us how in meditation, he was led to prayer to honor You. And to remember the brevity of his own life so that he would gain an eternal perspective on all matters, including his sufferings and including the reality of his own sin. And so, Father, I pray that like David, you would give us wisdom to recognize your hand in all things and through that to be trusting in you always, both in the good seasons and in the bad. That we would be a people who honor You always with the entirety of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that probably most of you have heard the proverbial saying, when it rains, it pours. Like most all proverbial sayings, This has nothing to do with what the sound of the saying communicates. It has nothing to do with rain. We say it when there are many bad things that are happening to us all at once or close together. Sometimes we may just be referring to a series of inconveniences when we say it, you know, our Our car breaks down and we get it fixed and we drive home and the refrigerator or the oven stops working and then we got to work on that and then we go out and we check the mailbox and we get our power bill and the power bill is higher than we had been anticipating. These are inconveniences that can frustrate us, especially when they all come at once. One time when we lived in in Louisville, there was a a, a bad snow and ice storm uh, that hit. And at the time, uh, we had Eliana in daycare. And I had to go pick her up in the midst of the storm. And from leaving our apartment to then returning, I got into three different car wrecks. That has to be a record of some kind. I'm sure I hold the Guinness Book of Records. I've never heard of this before. But on the way there, of course, I'm driving incredibly slowly because the ice ice has covered the road. I'm only going like five or 10 miles an hour. And uh, there's a a traffic light. You see the the car stopping. And so I'm easing on the brakes, but it's just not working. And the car starts sliding. And then I hit the back of a car. So then we get out and we look at it. And fortunately, because we were, or I was going so slow, there was no damage. So we talked for a moment, said we don't need to do anything about it. As I was getting into the car, I mean, this is like a couple of minutes later, then all of a sudden another car hits me in the back. And that one actually does some pretty severe damage. So we've got to exchange uh, information. Of course, it's snowing all over the place, so we're trying to get this done really quick. So we exchange information. And I leave. Then on the way back, it's like I I see it coming again. I'm coming down a hill, there's ice all over the place and at the traffic light up ahead, I see that there's already another wreck. So I've got these brakes going on very slowly and finally I come to a complete stop at the traffic light as I'm watching what's going on. And sure enough, a couple of minutes later, another car, bang, hits me in the back. Yet again, unfortunately this time we had a police officer that was already out there dealing with, with one of the wrecks, but you know, this, this three times just in a matter of a couple of hours, right? This is, uh, this is the proverbial saying, when it rains, it pours. And at this point, I was just praying to the Lord, get me home. Sometimes these things can happen And sometimes, they're just interruptions within our normal routines. But sometimes, we can also experience great afflictions in the very same way. You can think, for example, about a man like Job and what happened to him. Within a very short period of time in his life, he loses all of his wealth All of his children, all of his servants, even his bodily health. The only thing that he has left is is just the breath in his lungs. There's nothing healthy about his body other than the fact that his heart is still beating. Robbers had raided his livestock and servants, and they took his livestock and they killed all of his servants. All of His children were gathered together in a single house and a great wind, we're told, came like a storm and it destroyed the house while they were in it. All of His children dead in a moment. And then eventually, of course, we read that His own body was afflicted by a painful skin disease that gave Him no relief. Now, as Christians who are to have a biblical worldview. There is no place for considering these kinds of things as mere coincidences. There's no place for considering it just as a matter of purposeless bad luck. Scripture teaches us that God is sovereign. And that He rules meticulously over all creation. That He is constantly, every hour, every millisecond, upholding all things, and that there is nothing that happens apart from His sovereign decree. His continual rule and His ordering of all things is what theologians often refer to as His providence. And it was the providential rule of God using the evil intentions of Satan which brought all of those afflictions upon Job. And of course, the whole book is about the purposes of God in such afflictions. Well, something similar is going on here in Psalm 39. David is suffering. We don't know the exact nature of his sufferings. He doesn't spell them out for us. And I think intentionally so. So that we don't find this to be unique only for David. This was a psalm that was, of course, intended to be sung by all of the people of Israel, led in their singing by the choir master, Jejuthun. And so there's perhaps an intentional vagueness to the nature and the kind of David's suffering. But that he is suffering is obvious from the psalm. He speaks in verse 2 of having distress. Or pain. There's, there's an emotional turmoil that his sufferings are bringing to him. He has lost things that are very dear to him, things that he has loved. For he says of God in verse 11, if you look with me down there, he says, You consume like a moth what is dear to man. And for David, this could have been his throne. When he was on the run from Absalom, this could have been his wealth as he found himself hiding in caves. This could have even been the death of his own son after the sin that he committed with Bathsheba. Whatever the case exactly was, the point is clear. David has suffered a great loss. But unlike in the case of Job, in this psalm, David understands. He knows that his afflictions are coming from the hand of God. And, particularly, that they are the result of his sin. He speaks of needing to be delivered from his transgressions in verse 8. He speaks of being stricken by the hostile hand of God in verse 10 and being rebuked for his sin in verse 11. But this is a conclusion that David seems to arrive at only later and after much meditation and after prayer. In the beginning of the psalm, David appears to be in somewhat of a state of confusion. He, he lacks answers, and here we might say he's more within the realm of Job, uncertain as to exactly why this is happening. His distresses are fresh, the dark providences are new, and the clouds have only recently begun to cover him. But what He does here, and how He responds to His afflictions I think is is very instructive for us. It is often the case that when things don't go our way, or when dark providences and evils fall on us, we can be quick to simply grow frustrated, angry, bitter, and and in essence, cast our Christian life to the wayside and indulge in sinful passions. But there are lessons here, I think, that we can learn about suffering well. And one of them that we learn in the beginning of the psalm is very simple. It is that in all circumstances, we are to always honor the Lord. We are to honor the Lord. You'll notice in the beginning that even though David's sufferings are compounding and increasing, the first thing that he says he resolved to do was to guard his tongue when he's around the wicked. We read in verse 1, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. By sinning with his mouth, David would be saying something that is dishonoring to God in the presence of the wicked. It's like when Job was afflicted and his wife told him to curse God and die. And Job refused to to curse God and, and we are told that he did not sin with his lips. David here wants to give the wicked no opportunity to curse and blaspheme his God. And so he resolves, in the midst of his affliction, to maintain God's honor. Even if, as of yet, he still does not understand why he is suffering or even if it is becoming overwhelming, his main priority, like Job's, is to honor the Lord. There's no excuse. There's no justification in his mind. There's no category for dishonoring God. And if there was nothing else for us to learn, I think this alone would be sufficient. It is often the case that men, in their hubris, in their pride, and this includes even Christians, it is often the case that men give no thought at all to questioning the character of God when they suffer and thereby dishonor Him. It is one thing, of course, to seek to humbly understand His ways through meditating on His Word. Through asking good questions that are provoked by the Word and by prayer itself. But it is an entirely different thing to question God. As though You were the judge capable of putting Him on trial. You don't put God on trial. Ever. You don't ever stand over Him. You don't stand in judgment against Him, even if, like Job, you don't understand His works. If you do, it will not go well for you when God confronts you and says to you like He did to Job at the end of the book, I will question you. You make it known to me. Where were you? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? I'm the one who's made everything. You're a... Creature, what do you know? What do you have that you have not received? Perhaps some of you will remember. Maybe you've seen when the late R.C. Sproul was asked a question from an anonymous audience member at a at a Ligonier conference. The uh, questioner asked this. The question was, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Now, there are good questions and there are bad questions. And bad questions are usually usually the kinds of questions that you hear reporters and journalists constantly asking. They're the kinds of questions that are loaded within the question with all kinds of assumptions and moral judgments baked into the question itself. And this, this question that was asked was one of those. It was a bad question, loaded with a moral judgment, particularly aimed at God. Right? His actions are too severe. And Sproul, when he, when he hears the question, he, in his sprawlish way, <laughs> took issue with it. He said, in response, he said, He was repeating the question. His wrath and punishment are so severe and long-lasting? And then he gives his answer. He says, this creature from the dirt, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God after that God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, He lived another day and was clothed in His naked, nakedness by pure grace. And He had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time, but the worst curse he says, would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? And then you know the rest. What's wrong with you people? And he he made a statement. He said, this is what's wrong with the American church. We don't know who God is and who we are. The two most important lessons to learn, as we've even seen recently, the two most fundamental truths to understand to have any real knowledge and wisdom. Who God really is and who man is, is one of the things that the American church is greatly lacking. Sproul was rightly concerned above all about upholding the honor of God. And this is the kind of thing that David is wanting to maintain as well. E- even though in the present moment he is suffering, he doesn't understand it, he of course does not like it, the chief thought that is on his Mind is to guard his tongue so that in his frustration and in his confusion and distress, he does not carelessly vent and say something to dishonor his God. Now, the psalm continues. He then describes this experience this experience of distress that's building up within him. He covers his mouth with his hands so that he might not sin around the wicked. But as he holds his tongue in check, there's still a growing need for, for understanding. He, he still wants some measure of knowledge, some, some, some understanding of what's going on. He says, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, to to no good. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused, as I meditated, as I fought on these things. The fire burned. Then, he says, I spoke with my tongue. And here, what appears to be happening is that David's anger, at least as you look at it at first, what appears to be happening is that David's anger is growing. It's turning into a hot fire until finally he blows up and he says whatever's on his mind. That's what it looks like as you're reading it at first. But That's not actually what happens. When he spoke, he did not speak with uncontrolled rage. He did not start hurling accusations upwards to God. We find that his speech came through a prayer, which leads us to our second lesson, which is the need to pray to the Lord in times of distress. Now, when you pray, You don't always pray the same way, of course. Sometimes your prayers can just be short prayers of thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for this food we're about to eat. Nothing more need be said. you are giving thanks to the Lord. But other times when you're you're really seeking the Lord on a matter, your, your prayer may be much more thoughtful. You know you have a hearing with the King. And you need to think a little bit about what you're going to say before you say it. And that seems to be what David has done here. Before he speaks, he's done some thinking. He's done some more meditating. We might say that he's even thought prayerfully before beginning his prayer. Because when he does pray, the distress that provoked his prayer has now been moved further down the list of priorities. He doesn't even speak of it again. He's not even speaking of his present afflictions until around verse 10. And even then, It's now with a whole different perspective. With clarity. With an understanding. It's as if the very move towards seeking God has caused him to think much more about eternity. And so when he prays, he prays that the Lord would give him a biblical and an eternal perspective on all of life, including His present distress. He asked the Lord in verse 4, He says, O Lord, make me know... not my distress, my end. Make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. David wants to know here, not merely as just a matter of fact, but as a source of wisdom, truly how brief a man's life is. He considers this to be an important truth that is worthy of his reflection, which he goes on to do in verses 5 and 6. He says that God has made his life as nothing before him. As only a few hand breaths. It's it's not long at all. It's, It's a mere breath. It's here one moment. It's gone the next. It's like a shadow, he says. And therefore, there is a sense in which there is much vanity that is seen in the world. The pursuit of wealth, of course, The pursuit of wealth for merely its its own sake is one such vanity he points to. He says, man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Many men make their whole life about the accumulation of stuff as if the stuff is what has value. But David says, just like we read in Ecclesiastes, that this is vanity because eventually someone else is going to get your stuff. (laughs) You poured your whole life into the accumulation of it. And as soon as the Lord says, you're dead. It's gone. You can't carry it with you. Wealth can, of course, certainly be used to honor the Lord. We are called as Christians to be good stewards of all the Lord gives to us. But as Jesus says, as He warns, it can be very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because the riches and the wealth just weigh him down. And he begins to serve his money rather than God. And in this, there is much vanity. But if you know how fleeting your life truly is, as David seeks to understand, then your your life won't be lived in the pursuit of vanity. It won't be lived in the pursuit of things that don't ultimately last, because that would truly be a wasted life. So David wants to know this. He wants to understand it. And I think within the context of this prayer, there's at least two reasons why this is the case. Why this is some focusing and specifically. And one is that this eternal perspective, this, this understanding That in the grand scheme of all eternity, this understanding of the brevity of man's life also gives a better perspective on the nature of suffering. It reminds the believer especially that his sufferings will not be forever. That in fact, they are rather short. It's a lesson that I think can be very hard to remember, particularly when you're in the midst of suffering, right? You think it's going to last forever. And that thought becomes very daunting. It's overwhelming. You think you can't go on anymore. You can't endure anymore. You can't tolerate yet another day of this affliction. Maybe you've endured the same thing for the last Several weeks or months, or maybe even years, and you start to believe that there will be no end. There's no relief that will ever come. And it may indeed be the case that affliction lasts your whole life. There's no promise at all that in this life there will come a time when, as a Christian, All of your suffering ceases. That's not a promise that we have to hold on to. This is one of the reasons why it's important to be reminded truly of the shortness of life. If we live a long, full life, how long is that? 80 years? 90 years? 100 years maybe? In the grand scheme of things, That's not a long time. And you come to realize this more and more the older you get. One minute you had a baby, and the next minute the baby is not a baby and is grown and is having babies. And it comes just like that. One minute you were young, one minute you were able to Gloriously dunk a basketball. And the next minute, you can't not even jump a centimeter off the ground. (laughs) Just in a moment, right? It goes. When you're young, you think you're going to live forever. When you're old, time of necessity wises you up to that reality of the brevity of life. And David is praying to learn that lesson soon so that he can see that even his sufferings will be but a moment. They'll be short. It is this very lesson also that undergirds the Apostle Paul's reflection on his own sufferings related to the Gospel when he said of them in 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, he said, for this light, light, momentary affliction. Now, let's just think about some of these things that are light for Paul. Being stoned. Being beaten. Being shipwrecked. Being rejected by his own kinsmen. Things that we would say, that's heavy. That's weighty. He's looking at it and he's saying of all of them, these are light, momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are to come. The inheritance that is as of right now, heavenly in the future will be heavenly and earthly. As we look to the things that are seen, or excuse me, as we don't look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And then he says, well the things that are seen, are transient. They're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. He's, He's thinking in the grand scheme of eternity about His present afflictions. And this eternal perspective on life, particularly in Christ, can help us see affliction for what it truly is. It is something that is momentary, temporary, and therefore it can strengthen us with the help of the Spirit of God to endure whatever dark providences there may be. One of the things that allows, that helps, that undergirds the Christians being able to have joy in the midst of sufferings is this reality of eternity. And that our eternal life is secure in Christ. But I think another reason why David wants to understand the brevity of life is that it teaches him, in fact, to trust in the Lord even more. And this is the final lesson we'll consider. This is a point here that is very similar to what we find in the book of Ecclesiastes which was written most likely by Solomon, David's son, which just as a brief side note, is just another reminder about how much of Solomon's own wisdom came from his father. And the importance, men, of passing down that biblical wisdom and instruction to your own children. Solomon, we know, had his own sins that he's accountable for. But what was good and righteous and wise about Solomon's life, much of it came from his own father. But perhaps you'll remember how the book of Ecclesiastes concludes after surveying all of the various vanities that exist in life, including its brevity. A generation goes, he says, and a generation comes. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which passes like a shadow. After considering these things, how does the book end? The last two verses of the book say this. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It is the meditation on the brevity of life among other matters that leads Solomon to give this final bit of wisdom. That what truly matters, what lasts for eternity, is that you fear God and you keep His commandments. And in the same way, as David is reflecting on how fleeting his life is, it then leads him in his prayer to then turn to God in trust all the more. He says in verse 7, if you look with me there, He says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in You. Who is the only one who can save a man from living a life that is mere vanity and that vanishes forever like the wind? And who is the only one who can give ultimate meaning to life and ultimate eternal justice and ultimate salvation. It is the Lord and the Lord alone, and it is in Him who we must trust. And as David hopes in the Lord, he then, as, he, as he's looking to the Lord, it is then that he comes to the understanding that he, like every man, is a sinner in need of saving. And he comes to understand that his present afflictions even have come to him from the hand of God. And this, of course, is not to say but every time that we suffer it's because of our sin but while david in his own prayer is thinking about these matters while he's contemplating eternity he then understands that his own present distress is in fact due to his sin the lord he says in verse 10, was striking him and rebuking him for his sin. And in verse 11, whatever it was, it was that he was coveting and desiring more than anything. God was stripping it away from him. And the Lord does this for his children, he does this to bring us to repentance. He does this to remove our idols from our idol-producing hearts. He strips us of those things which we hold most dear, more dear rather, than we do with God. He humbles us. As we saw last week, He convicts us of our sin, shines a light upon it. And when in His grace He does this for us, it is so that we will repent and cry out to Him for salvation. It is so that we will say with David, deliver me. Deliver me, O Lord, from all my transgressions. This is part of the goodness of God towards His children. We require what that one questioner said was a so severe punishment. We need it because our hearts get so hardened to the things of God, the only thing that will work is to shatter the hardness. To expose what is there is so that we will look to Him and see the rod in His hand is but a rod that a shepherd uses to prod His sheep and to keep them in His fold. The rod of the Lord for His people is ultimately a rod of love and not a rod of wrath. And the only thing that makes this possible The only thing that makes his strokes that of a loving father rather than that of an enemy is the fact that one who had truly never sinned before bore the fierceness of the rod of wrath and the stroke of justice in himself for our sake the deliverance from all our transgressions came through Israel's King. Came through David's King. A King who came at first humble and riding on a donkey, but a King who will come again in power and in glory and with a rod of iron. And this King, friends, is our Lord and our God. It is Him we serve. It is Him who has brought us to salvation. It is Him who has bought us. It is this King who intends to make His bride, the church, His people ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He does this by washing us clean by His atoning blood and by sanctifying and purifying us by fire, removing all of that dross that is upon us, removing all of that dirt, removing all of that sin that is so deeply rooted. He does meticulously rule over us to root out every last remnant of sin in preparation of His coming. So when you are afflicted, you need to think of these things. You think of eternity. You think of the brevity of life so that you can be reminded that as as painful and as distressing this may be, it won't last forever. And you remember as well that all things that God does in your life is for your good. Surgery can be very painful, but it's for your good. It's to bring healing to your body. And the great surgeon, the great physician, our King, is constantly at work in our souls. Doing things that may be painful, but doing things that bear the fruit of eternal life. You Remember these truths when you go to Him in prayer. And you think also about Him who has secured your eternity. And when you are thinking about these things and musing upon them and in His Word... Trying to gain that Biblical and eternal perspective. When you remember these truths, it will help you. It will strengthen you to endure a cross with much joy. Which is what as Christians we are called to do. And what the Lord will strengthen us to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we are grateful because even when Your hand, as David describes it, appears to be hostile to us, even when You are rebuking us for our sins and convicting us by the light of Your Word and Your Spirit, these are... These are Your works that are intended to humble us and cause us to repent and to draw nearer to Yourself. This is the loving rod of our Good Shepherd. And so Lord, I I thank You for your, Your loving hand. And I pray that we would We would learn to kiss that rod that strikes us. We would learn to recognize it for what it is. Your good hand working within us. That we would trust in You all the more and uphold Your honor. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.